0: Good morning again. Welcome to Christ Church. Um, Good to be worshiping with you this morning. If you're visiting, uh, my name is Nate. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church. We're a a church plant. Um, Actually, this Easter we're coming up on being a year old since we've been uh, worshiping as a body together, um, which is kind of a a, a big milestone. Actually, as Trev mentioned, this last uh, last Sunday. Mike Kelly, who's kind of the guy who's overseeing me as a church planner, was up here and, and preaching, and uh, that was our first Sunday where we had a uh, hundred people. And uh, so that uh, numbers aren't every you know everything in a church, but you know if you read through Acts, um, Luke records that. Uh, one of the uh, indications that God is working is that there's a growing group of people coming together to uh, to study God's word, to worship together, and so uh, just a real sign that God is is at work uh, among us. And and really, you know, I just wanted to commend you that w- one of the things that really stuck out to them in coming to this uh, community, they they had uh, some friends uh, in town who were came and worshiped with us. And they just said that people came up to them and welcomed them and uh, made an effort to go and talk to them, spent five, seven minutes talking to their friends. So they just felt like there was a real warm, um, welcoming environment here. So I just want to commend you as a church. And I, I feel that way here that... Um, that uh, this is a warm environment and, um, and it's just evidence of the gospel, you know, that we know that we're sinners who need grace, we need to be welcomed, we need to be invited, and, and that you're giving that to one another. So uh, let me just encourage you in that and, and to, uh, to keep on in it. We are um, studying the gospel of Luke together. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 13, where uh, the passage we're going to be looking at is printed for you in the bulletin. And we're going to be starting in verse 18, and going uh, to the end of the chapter. You know, one of the things about Luke, it's got all these little episodes in it, and I can't do sermons on every little episode. We'd be going through Luke for 10 years. So I got to kind of group things together and try to make them, you know, uh, uh, make it still a unified sermon. So we got a couple of things uh, linked together, and uh, we'll see where the Spirit uh, takes us. So uh, this is Luke 13, verse 18. This is the word of the Lord to you uh, because he loves you. He said, therefore, this is Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to, st- to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west And from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be... That a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God, we come before you and we are thankful for the word of the gospel and that you give us, you speak to us, you reveal yourself to us in your word and and especially through Jesus and that that revelation of who you are actually has the power to transform us and we ask that by your spirit you would take uh, your perfect word and you would apply it to each one of our lives. Lord, you know each one of our lives, the different things that we are facing, the different thoughts that we are facing temptations that we're facing, doubts that we're facing. And we pray that you would apply your words to each of those so that you would build up our faith, that we would trust you, that we would walk with you. And that by your spirit you would transform us individually and us as a church and uh, even this city, Bellingham. And that you would use uh, this church, uh, this, this congregation, um, to proclaim the gospel. So uh, we offer ourselves to you, we open our hearts to you, um, to learn from you, knowing uh, that you are a great teacher, so we ask this in Christ's name, Amen. So uh, the, the title of the the uh, sermon, that as it's printed in your bulletin, is discipleship and how the gospel changes everything. And uh, that that title actually, in some ways, kind of summarizes one of probably the biggest uh, core value. Uh, for this church, what is it? You know, if there was something we say, this is something that we really believe in that we want to hammer home. That uh, is is the deepest value for us. Is that the gospel? changes the gospel, which is is really this little story. Little story that Jesus was the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God, and He rose again, conquering death. That little story, I, could, I can summarize it in less than twenty five words. That that little, it's like that little story is like a seed that uh, when it gets planted in us, it um, it germinates, it begins to take roots, it becomes to come alive and grow in us, and actually has the power, it's really the thing that has the power to transform our lives and and to transform a city and to transform the world. That's really what we believe. And uh, And so what I want to do as we look at this passage is kind of build the bridge of how do you get from the 25 words, you know, this little story, to... Lives transformed, and uh, or a city transformed, right? or a congregation transformed. How does how does that bridge connect the dots? Because I think for many of us, that's a question of oh, okay, I understand. People say, if you believe in Jesus, your life will transform. Well, how does it work? What does that look like? And because for many of us, you know, when we think about, um, you know, we have a number of things that we think should be different about our life. You know, our marriage should be different. I should be. I should be kinder to my spouse. I should, um, I should love God more. I should read and pray more. I should serve my neighbors. I should be reaching out more. I should play with my kids more. How does my life transform? And for most of us, there's really only one answer to that. We're just like, you just stop doing it. Snap out of it, right? You know, grab it. Get a hold and maybe, you know, Maybe you have people in your life that you wish you know, they need to kind of change, and, and you're like, how would they change? I just want to grab them and snap out of it. Stop doing it. And we think that that's basically how God changes us. Stop doing it. Start reading your Bible. Start, uh, start being, having a better marriage, being a better person. Just do it, right? Just do it. It doesn't work like that. And you know, you know, even when you tell you know you have a friend you want to change them, you know, if I just tell them snap out of it, it doesn't work. <laughs> but you don't know what else to do, <laughs> right? And uh, well, that's why um, at far, uh, here the, the conviction of this church is that that's not how people change. The way that people change is through good news, is actually hearing good news creates joy, creates love, creates gentleness, kindness. And it's not just the good news, is not just something that when you, you know, when you went to camp when you were a 17-year-old and you went to a Christian camp and you accepted Jesus, it wasn't just good news then, it's something that you need to live on, it's something you need to hear every Sunday when you come to church here uh, is, is here good news and that the, the regular diet of good news grows and transforms takes root and bears, bears fruit that 's really what we 're going to look at in this text and so what I want to do is, is in answering this question how how does the gospel the little 25 words get to a changed life, a changed community, a changed city? Um, first, I want to say three things of how it works first, the gospel changes us organically the gospel is an organic uh, you know, growing, gradual, like plant life, kind of power. Second, the gospel changes us subconsciously. What's that? Okay, gotta wait. Okay, All right. <laughs> Subconsciously. Third, the gospel changes us personally. So what I'm going to first do is talk about those three things and how the gospel changes us as individuals and show that the promise of the gospel is also that it doesn't just change us as individuals, but actually is, has a vision for the whole world. So organically, subconsciously, and personally. So first, the gospel tr- transforms people organically. And, and that's kind of in contrast to instantaneously. You know when you shake someone you're like, snap out of it? You want instantaneous change. The gospel doesn't work like that. It works organically. So look, at, uh, look here at um, verse 18. Jesus says this, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? Wait, it's a little side note. You hear how Jesus asks himself that question? He's going to talk about spiritual things and uh, you know about God and the gospel and things like that. And the question he asks himself is, to what can I compare this? Let me just say that if you're trying to communicate to someone about Christianity, this is an exercise that you need to go through. If Jesus needs to go through it, We need to go through it. To what can I compare this? If we just talk at people in spiritual jargon, they have no idea what we're talking about. And so we need to, uh, as Christians, we need to learn, what is this like? How does this relate to, you know, well, you know, your relationship with God is kind of like a marriage, you know. And you find things in everyday life to compare it to. So that's what Jesus does, right? He says, what shall I compare it? It It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew. And became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And what we know from uh, other parts of Jesus' teaching is that when Jesus talks about a seed, generally the seed is is talking about the word of God. You know, if you know the, the parable of the sower, the guy who goes and he throws out uh, the seed and it falls on different kinds of ground. Uh, in that parable, Jesus says the seed is the word is the word of God. And it's actually uh, I'm not going to go into a big word study of it, but it's it's really the gospel. Um, the seed of the gospel. is it, Jesus says the seed of the gospel, the little 25 words thing, it's a teeny little thing. It doesn't seem, you know, like that big a deal. When it plants in you, it begins to grow. That's what he says. It's like a seed that, that grows. And one of the things is, uh, is that what that tells us is that when the gospel comes in your life, you have to be prepared that it's going to change you and grow in you gradually, not instantaneously. So uh, th- that's how organic life works. You know, we just had some... Uh, Friends in town from uh, from that we see, you know, every few years. There's some friends they have kids about our kids' age, and they were staying with us last weekend. And you know, they see our kids, and they haven't they haven't seen our kids in in a couple of years. And they say, "Wow, they they look so different. They're big and run around. They're much more articulate and talking." And to us, we didn't we didn't really notice that. You know, I kind of think Lucy looks the same as she did when she was three. You know, I'm like, "Yeah, she's probably about the same." But someone who hasn't sees three to six, is like, "Wow." transformation. It's gradual. That's how organic life works. And what that means is um, that often we can't see the growth that the gospel is doing in us. We can't see that it's happening. But one of the things that happens is when we rest in the facts, see the gospel says that um, you are, you're really far worse than you want, you know, you try to make people see you a certain way, you're actually far worse than that. Um, You know, your heart is, uh, you're bitter towards people, you're judgmental towards people, um, you're short-tempered, impatient, whatever. You know, the list goes on. We're all that way. The gospel says we're far worse. And yet, in Christ, we have God's unimaginable free grace and love and forgiveness. It's just, it's immovable. No matter how much we sin, we cannot lose God's love because Jesus has forgiven all of our sin. He's already done it. He's lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we shouldn't die. So it's already, he's already done all that for us. And believing means that we rest in that truth. I just, I rest in it. I I accept it. I embrace it. And when we do that, what Jesus is saying, when that seed kind of sits down in us, it will change you. And you might not see, you're like, why am I not changing today? The question is, well... How about a year? How about five years? What is the gospel doing over or over that amount of time? And the, the reason why that's important is because we need to trust in it. Because sometimes we think, is that just enough for me to just trust God, trust my heart to God, trust my life to God? Is that going to be enough? And Jesus says, you've got to do it because it, it's, a, it's an organic growth that's happening. It's a gradual growth that's happening. And you might not even see it happen, but other people might see it happening. It might happen in your marriage. And, um, and so you might say, um, okay... Okay, that makes sense, but that doesn't work for everyone, right? I mean, there are people in church who are in church for 30 years, and they don't change, right? And they're just sitting there waiting for it to happen. What's the difference? Well, we know from, other parable, from the parable of the sower that Jesus says that your heart is kind of like ground. You can be, your heart can be hard ground or soft ground. And when your heart is soft ground, which means that you, you have a sense of desperation, you're needy, you know that you're sinful. You know that you can't meet God's standards. You know that you, uh, you can't be who God intends you to be. You know you can't do that. That's soft ground. And when the gospel gets into that soft ground, what happens is you actually, you know, you, you become warmer. You become more patient. You, be, you, you have to give people slack because you need slack, right? You, need, you, need, uh, you want to be generous to people because you know you need God to be generous to you and show you grace. And the more that you experience that, that you're a needy person, you're going to respond to people's neediness, right? You're going to be gentle. And so it's even like, you know, you take some, my experience of, you know, some of you uh, struggle to read the Bible. And, uh, and you know, so we have different temperaments, and some people are going to be just more naturally drawn to reading. And, and, uh, but the question of, you know, one of the things that I've experienced with, with people who have a real steady habit of Bible reading it's actually not because they're especially disciplined. I think that, you know, my parents who were not Christians for a long time, they saw that I read the Bible all the time, and uh, and they say, you're just so disciplined. And I, actually, my parents are way more disciplined people than I am. I'm, I'm a kind of lazy procrastinate, procrastinator kind of person. It's very unnatural. It's not like my personality to have this kind of regular Bible reading. The fact is that I'm just miserable to be with if I haven't... <laughs> had some time in the Bible, you know, my dad, he, even before he was a Christian, I became a Christian, and, you know, I'd be depressed, or I'd be, um, you know, being irritable towards him, and he'd say, you know, why don't you go get away and read your Bible for a couple a couple hours, I mean, he, it was obvious to him that it was a sense of desperation and neediness, I just need to read it, or I'm, a, I'm just terrible to be with, and, you know, Shannon, Shannon could vouch, she's not in here, she could vouch for that, too, um, and so it's actually, the people who have a regular, steady diet of reading the Bible, it's not because they're regimented, disciplined people. It's because they're needy. It's because they say, I need it. I just know I'm desperate. I know, I know what kind of person I'm going to be if I don't have it. And so um, it's in that kind of soft ground that the gospel is like a seed that is buried in us, and it grows gradually over time. And so trusting God, means trusting that if I'm going to give myself to the gospel, I believe that God is going to be working in me. And the thing is that your changed life is a work of God. That is not your work. It's God's work to do in you. And guess what? God is not done with you. God's got more stuff he's doing. There's more stuff he is doing. He's doing it now. And so you trust it. Trust the gospel. Rest in it. So first, uh, the power of the gospel is organic. It's gradual. That's how it works. Second, and this, uh, this is a profound one to me, is that the gospel transforms us subconsciously. Now, uh, the reason I talk about that, if you, I don't know how many of you have, have ever had uh, any kind of counseling, or, um, but one of the, the major models of, of modern psychology is that, uh, the, I think this comes from like Carl Jung or something, uh, but basically that your soul, your mind, basically has two parts to it. There's the conscious part and there's the unconscious part. And the things you're doing, the way you're talking to people, the way you're building relationships, the way you're making decisions in your life is, is based on both these things of your conscious life and your subconscious life, right? And so the, I don't know if you know this image of the, the iceberg, and they say, you know, your mind or your soul is like an iceberg, and the conscious part is really just the tip of the iceberg. And the way that you interact with people and everything, all the decisions you make, there's actually this giant... Um, iceberg below the water, you know, under the water level, that's full of every person who's ever hurt you, every sin, every sense of shame. All, it's just this web of a mess. And and that's impacting your marriage. It's impacting how you do your work. It's impacting all these things. It's subconscious. And so, for example, and, and so that's why you do things that you just don't understand. I don't even know why I'm doing this. You know, this, we we went down to Bellevue a couple of days ago. And I, I've been working on this essay that I want to put on our website. It's a little essay of what is the gospel. And I, I, I was finished with the first draft of it. I don't really edit. You know, I don't edit my sermons. I don't edit anything. I just like, this, done. You know, <laughs> last period, done. And uh, so, I, I, I came in the room, and Shannon and her mom were in there, and uh, and I was like, hey, I finished the essay. You guys want to read it? You know, give me some feedback. Which, which really means, do you want to tell me you like it? And... Um, <laughs> The uh, and you know I'm not especially good uh, I, you know I'm I'm literally a, a public school dropout you know and really the 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 part of school where they were teaching writing that's the part that was deleted so um, and Shannon's mom Shannon's mom is a uh, you know she's a tutor she teaches high school students how to write so we sit down she starts reading and I mean we're it's like ten minutes. On the first paragraph, you know that you can't use a semicolon like that, and you know that's not a sentence. This doesn't make sense. I'm just like, give me that. This is not what I asked for, right? And uh, and and you know, and I. This is internally what's happening to me. I'm just like this. I I write more sophisticated than she understands. It's she's not smart enough. (laughs) That's why that's why she doesn't get it. So I'm mad at her. I came in asking her. To, to edit my paper, and she's doing that. She's helping me, and I'm mad at her. And, you know, it's funny, but, you know, it's sad. You know, I, I, the next couple of hours, I didn't want to talk to my kids. I didn't talk at dinner. <laughs> and you're just like, what happened? I asked for people to edit my paper, and then they did it, and and I fall apart. and Now, you say, you know, gosh, you are a ba- what? you're such a baby. Why is this? Buck up, you know? But, you know, the psychologist is going to say, listen, Nate... This is what's going on. You got a whole web of stuff going down in your subconscious of insecurity and and things that make it so that you don't even know why you're responding this way. But it, there's all this subconscious going on under you, and you got What you got to do is you got to take the water line and you and you got to lower the water line, right? Lower the water line. Find out what's down there so you can deal with it and, and work through it. Now, to some degree. It's a good idea, okay? It's good to understand yourself, understand your heart, understand what's going on. Actually, John Calvin, uh, in his big theological work, he begins by saying, the only way you can understand God is by understanding yourself. You need to know your heart. You need to know the sin and the brokenness that's in your heart in order to understand God's grace. You, it, they go together. But one of the things, the assumptions that's going on in that picture of, of the uh, the iceberg is that what's gonna happen when I lower that water line? How big is that iceberg under there, right? How messy is it? Am I even sure I wanna look at what's down there? Am I even gonna sure I'm gonna know what to do once I lower the water line? And maybe that thing's gigantic. Maybe it's something I can't even handle. And one of the things that's good news about the gospel is even though that's a good idea to, to look at to understand yourself, is that the gospel gets into your subconscious and works in your preconscious level. In ways that you don't even know that it's working. Look at, Jesus says, this is a great parable. Um, Verse 20. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. What he's saying is that the gospel is something that's hidden deep down in your secret secret. Hidden parts that you don't even know about. Hidden part of your life that you can't even see. It's not even obvious to you. And, it, and, it, and it, it, it's like leaven that begins to spread in there. Or, or you know, Psalm 51, which, which Trev was reading this morning uh, for our confession, uh, it says this, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. And actually the Hebrew word is there for that. It's like, teach me wisdom in my locked chamber. I have these locked chambers of my heart that no one's allowed in. Teach me wisdom in there, in the subconscious, in the in in in, uh, in the iceberg, and I'll tell you the way that yeast works. I I know I used to brew beer, so I know a little bit about how the dynamics of how yeast works. Um, yeast uh, is you know is a living uh, organism that eats uh, the sugars in the grain, and when the when the yeast eats the sugar, two things happen. It releases carbon dioxide. That's why the the bread. Uh, it rises, right? It's releasing gas into the, into the carbon dioxide, but it also reproduces. It eats, the, it eats the grain and it reproduces and it begins to spread through the whole, through the whole lump or lump of dough, whatever you call it. And, um, and so that's how yeast works. And what's, what's fascinating about this parable is that if you've read through the Bible and you look up yeast in the Bible as what is it a symbol of, it's almost always a symbol of sin, it's always a symbol of corruption, is that sin, you have a little bit of sin, it's going to spread everywhere. You know, you tell a lie, right? You've got to start making up other lies to cover your first lie, and all of a sudden your whole life is a lie, right? That's how sin works, is it's like yeast. A little bit, and it begins to spread to the whole thing. And now what Jesus says is the tides have turned. It's not just sin, it's not just evil that spreads like that, but now the gospel spreads like that. And what happens is that um, the yeast... Uh, the yeast of the gospel gets down into your your conscious your you know, dark chambers that you don't even know about of your heart, and it begins eating at the shame. It begins eating at your failures. It begins. You come from a broken family. It begins eating at the at the brokenness in your life, and what it does is it transforms it, and uh and and it transforms parts of you that you don't even you don't even know are, are there, and uh, that's the. Um, um, so that when you come, you know, when you come here, and uh, and you hear, you know, every every Sunday we have this confession of sin where we all read aloud. This is what I did. This is what I do this week. Every week we all do it. And Trev says to you, hear God's assurance of pardon. God uh, God speaks His love to you. He sings His love to you. Or, or this morning, where He says, a, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise and you take every bit of shame, every failure that's in your life, whatever relational failures that have happened, God, if you are in Christ, God does not despise you. God does not despise you. And when you hear that, and when you you give yourself to that, when you rest in that, that is actually working in your heart in places that you couldn't get down and and fix yourself if you could. God's getting down. The Spirit is getting inside, inside of you through the Gospel, and um, and what it does is uh, is it, it kind of it, it eats it eats your sin. You know this is this is a really interesting image, um, because what happens is your uh, you know when you believe the gospel, you know when I became a Christian, I, I've shared this with you before. My parents, my parents, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and. Uh, my parents, when they had seen that, you know, I was reading the Bible. I believed in Jesus, and they said these two things. They would say, you know, on the one hand, your life is radically transformed. You know, I was I dropped out of school, and I was I had no relationship with them. I was a bad kid, and now, you know, I loved them, and um, I was cared about my life, stuff like that. They're like, your life is radically transformed, but you know, it's it's still same old Nate. It's still the same guy. Uh, but radically different. I don't know which one it is. And that's what yeast does. You know, yeast, when it begins to eat through the lump, it doesn't just destroy the lump. It transforms it. It expands it. It makes it rise. And that's what the gospel does in you. Is It takes, you know, things like, you know, you, you come from a broken home. And the gospel comes in and you find out that God is a father who will never leave you. And all of a sudden, you know what? You're still a person from a broken home, but you have a father. And so now you can connect with people who come from broken homes in ways that you never could have if you hadn't been from a broken home. Or if you have an anger problem, you can connect with people who have anger problems. And God actually, the gospel, eats your sin. It uses your sin for good. That's amazing. The gospel actually does that. And so, um, and so it changes you down in your subconscious. Now, someone might say, okay, I, that's, that's good news. If, if the gospel really gets down to me and is changing me and working me, it's growing gradually, it's cleaning me in ways that I, that I, I don't even know that's good news. But how does that work exactly? Um, you know, okay. The twenty-five words. How does the twenty-five words? Is it magic? I mean, is it just arbitrary that you believe in Jesus? Could I just have believed in? It? Could I have believed in the trees, or could I believe in myself? Or uh, isn't? Can I just believe in something? Why is it that I have to believe in that thing? It seems so kind of particular and concrete. Well, this is a, this is the third thing about the gospel is that the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. Um, in this passage, uh, Jesus, Jesus asked a question about salvation. We're going to come back to that. But um, in verse 24, he says this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will begin to, st- uh, you will begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer you, I do not know. Where you are from, and so what's interesting about this this little uh, this little parable is that Jesus says, you know, usually you think that salvation is about us knowing Jesus, but here Jesus says that salvation is really about does Jesus know us? And you might, and you know, doesn't isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he know everybody? Well, in the Bible, the word for knowing people isn't just. Uh, I know my neighbor's name. He knows your name. To know someone means to be personally uh, devoted to them, to love them, right? So you know, Adam and Eve in Genesis four. You know, when it said Adam knew Eve, that wasn't, oh yeah, Eve, the girl, girl on my neighborhood. Yeah, I know her. No, he knew her. They went into the tent together. You know, they knew each other. It was, uh, uh, it was a love. A deep relational love. Actually, there's another part in Galatians where, where Paul's talking to the Galatians about their salvation. He says, you know, now that you've known God, or rather have been known by God, that God has known you, that means that God has devoted himself to you, that he's loved you, that it's personal. And um, And what Jesus says is that to be saved, to, have a, to, to be transformed, is to be personally known by God, to, for his eyes to be upon you. And, you know, this is, this is even what he says. He says almost the same, same thing in verse 34, as he's looking over Jerusalem, and this is a city where he's going to go, and they're about to murder him. And this is the people that he came to kind of speak to and rescue and love, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's going to be him. Uh, in a, in a few chapters, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not? Jesus' hope for Israel and for his people is that they would be lo- you know he would be loved by him. It, that he would be like a mother hen. You know, he, Jesus is talking. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of like a chicken. I'm like you know you're the little chicks. And, uh, and I'll tell you that um, the message of the gospel is, is a declaration of God's love. That's what it is. It's a continual declaration of God's love. You know, I, one of the things I found in parenting is uh, when, uh, you know, when my kids are kind of out of, you know, getting out of control, so, you know, I, especially if they're, you know, disobeying Shannon or something like that, and they, they can't control themselves. Their hearts, their hearts seem hard. They don't want to listen to anything. Um, this isn't like a trick, but one thing that I found is more effective than, is I used to say to them, you know, don't you love your mom? Don't you want to you treat your mom better? Don't you love her? Why don't you treat her like, uh, like you love her? Think about how much you love her. She's your mom. Come on, you know? Aren't you a loving boy you want to treat? And you know, they, that might get them to be like, yeah, okay, here, I love you, here, do it. What I found is much more effective is to say to them, doesn't your mom love you? Doesn't she care for you? Would she, wouldn't she do anything for you? Would she ever let you go? She'd always be there for you, right? And actually, that little difference is talking to, to them not so much about how much they should love their mom, but how much their mom does love them actually has a much more power in softening them and, and saying, okay, yeah, I don't want you to treat my mom. Wow, she does love me. She does do all that for me. And, and that's essentially what the gospel does, is it transforms us because it's personal. And, um, you know, in a place like Bellingham, you know, all kinds of of there are all kinds of ways of of, of changing your life. You know, there's all kinds of practical, like, self-help things. These are things, steps you can do uh, to make your life better. And sometimes those things are helpful. I mean, I'm not against kind of pragmatic, helpful tools. But they're not personal. And the thing that really transforms a child, the thing that really transforms us is, is is to know that we're loved, to know that someone is devoted to us. And, um, and you think about this picture of the iceberg. You know, um, in a counseling setting, they tell you that underneath the iceberg, underneath what's going on down there is that you've got, a, you've got people who've wounded you, people who've sinned against you, and that's damaged you. And, and that's why you're protective. That's why um, you don't let people in your life is because someone's uh, affected you. And you think about that, and you're like, wow, you know, uh, you know, someone walked out on me or someone betrayed me or someone mistreated me. It was so easy for them to get down and just mess up my life. It was just like nothing. They just did it. And now, for me to undo that i got to lower the water level and i got to deal with it i got to work through it. it's this big thing to to, over, to overcome and what the gospel says is that it 's just as easy as it was for people to come in your life and say uh you 're nothing you 're not worth anything to me it's now God comes and just speaks something different to you and he says i don 't despise you, I love you I, you know you 're like little chickens i'm the i 'm the mother hen come uh coming ex I have to. I have to use this illustration. We just bought chicks, um, and each of my ki- uh, Lucy, Will, and Ada each have a little chick, and uh, and Will, you know what's been surprising to me is who you know. And they go and they hold them and they check on them and feed them and stuff like that. I've been surprised that who is the the most tender and thinking about their chick the most is actually Will. Uh, he he named his chick Power Ranger, uh, so we don't have a suit yet for it. We need to get a suit for it. Um, but, uh, you know, we were, like I was telling you, we were just down in Bellevue, and I saw Will, like, sitting in his chair looking out the window. I was like, Will, what's going on? Is something wrong? He's like, I miss my chick, you know. And little boy, and he's, he wants to hold it, make sure it's, and, and that's what, how Jesus talks about how he wants to be towards us. He wants, you know, Jesus is, is a, you know, manly kind of guy. He goes to cross. He's courageous, all that. And he says, you know, I want to be a mother, a little mother. You, my little chicken, coming under my wing. And uh, just like Will, it is it, it, personal. And you'll know that if you look at all the things that matter most in your life, the things that impact your life the most, they are personal things. They're not pragmatic, how to get your life together. It's who loves me. Who are my friends? Who's my family? Who's, who's asking about my life? Who, who's in, invested in me? Those are the big questions, and the gospel is all about that, is that there is a God who's invested in your life. And that's, um, and that's the good news. And, and, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that Christian counselors have, uh, are, are finding more and more is, you know, they'll have someone come in who's working through depression, working through broken families, working through addictions or sin, and, and it, it, they'll work with them for a long time, and at the end of the day, you know, they say, you know what you really need? You need a church. You know, you've had people that have been mistreating you your whole life. You need a gospel church. You need a body of people that live around this principle that Jesus died for sinners. And he receives them. And there's hope for them. And they transform them. You need a whole group of people who live under that principle. And that's what we are. That's why I'm saying the one thing about this church is that we're a church that believes the gospel. Not just when you first became a Christian, but our whole life, we believe the gospel. And that the gospel is actually what gets in us and, ch- ends, gets in us and changes everything. Now, that's kind of how it works. That's a part of how it works in a person's life. Um, but what I also want to say is that um, the gospel doesn't just change us individually. It, it actually has... It, it changes uh, communities. It changes cities. And ultimately, it, it's... It, the Bible says that it's going to change the world, that the gospel is for everyone. Um, you know, about 150 years ago, um, there was, in, the, in, the, in the America, there was a, a revivalist movement that did a lot of good, sh- shared the gospel with a lot of people, but one of the, the main uh, ideas that was kind of driving this movement of sharing, telling people about Jesus is that basically the world is a sinking ship. The world's basically the Titanic. And Jesus is a lifeboat. And you, you know, get on the lifeboat because the things, you know, there's just a few people who are going to get on it. And uh, so get on it while you can. And um, the question is, is that true? Is, Is the world largely just being trashed and there's a few people who are evacuating and escaping um, because they believed in Jesus. Is that how it works? Well, you know, in some ways that's the question that is asked to Jesus in this passage. We look at verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now generally when we think about that question there's two ways that we answer it. We either say, well, I know God is good and Loves, he's, God is love, so that means a lot of people got to get saved, and so there must be a lot of ways to get to God, because, you know, not everyone knows about Jesus. There's got to be a lot of ways. So, uh, so yes, so the answer is: Are there going to be few? No, there's going to be a lot of people because there's a lot of ways. There's the other option where you say no. Uh, Jesus says, "I am the truth, the life, and the way." There's only one way, and so what that means is. There's only going to be a few people, and are you going to be one of them? Believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. Um, it's interesting how uh, Jesus answers the question because, on the one hand, he doesn't say he doesn't uh, explicit, he doesn't say that there's going to be few. The first thing he says is, "Strive to enter through the narrow door. Uh, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able." Um, we know from John 10 that when Jesus talks about the door, that there's this doorway into salvation, that Jesus says, I am the door. And one of the things he says is a narrow door because there's only one way. I'm the way. I'm the way to God's love. What you need is you need uh, to be reconciled to God, and the only way to be reconciled to God is through faith in Christ. He says that's the one way. But um, he goes on. Look down in uh, verse 28. In that place, there will be, so he's talking to this kind of, these religious people who are rejecting him, have rejected God, and he says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And then he says this, and people will come. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving a picture of the whole world. He's giving a picture of all nations, all ethnic groups. And he says the people will come. And what Jesus is touching on is there is a continual a promise throughout the Bible that the world is going to be saved. You look in the Old Testament. Isaiah Habakkuk says uh, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. You know, when Abraham is called Genesis 12... In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, you know, John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or In, in 1 John, it says very similarly, uh, Jesus is a propitiation not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And then Jesus says, he tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. He doesn't say, go find disciples from every nation. He says, make disciples of all the nations. And, uh, and throughout the Bible, there is this continual theme that what God is going to do, what God has, is doing in us, he is going to do for all people. That is it, is it going to be a few people are saved? No, it's not. God is sending the knowledge of himself and his salvation everywhere. And, the, and, and at, you know at the end of the day, there's going to be far more people and listen, am I saying that everyone is going to be saved? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the gospel will win. And the gospel will, will the majority of people will come uh, to know God. And you can see this um, in, in your bulletin. I printed on page three for you uh, this passage from Colossians 1. For in him, as Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there is this picture of all the cosmos, of everything that God has created being reconciled to himself. It's a very optimistic and positive view of this world. And then he says this, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his deeds. And so what that means is that picture that I gave you, you know, of the seed that's getting planted in you and it's growing and it's gradually changing you. And the leaven that's, that's spreading all through your iceberg and this personal love of God that he's, you know, he's a chicken bringing you under. That whole picture of what God has done for you personally, you are a microcosm. You are a small picture of what God is going to do to the whole world. And that's exactly what, what uh, Paul says to them. He says, listen, God, God's going to reconcile all things. And he says, look, it's begun in you. You've already been reconciled. You've already been changed. And you are a little foretaste of what God's going to do to all things. And so, um, the gospel grows. And let me just tell you, you know, why am I planting a church? This passage about the mustard seed is one of the biggest reasons why I want to plant a church. Here we are, a little church up in Bellingham, in the corner of of the United States. Uh, You know, we're in the corner of Bellingham, you know. No one drives by here. We're this hidden little leaven in this city. And... uh, I'm I'm entirely optimistic that God, you know, when God was speaking this, he was training 12 disciples. And look at what they've done. Africa's 60% Christian. China's 10% Christian. Korea's 40% Christian. Uh, South America, tons of Christians throughout the world. It started with 12 guys. It started as a mustard seed. And what begins in us as a small thing uh, individually expands to all of us. And the same thing is happening in the world. And the good news is we're a part of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray uh, that you would give us soft hearts. And you give us courage to just trust you. To embrace your free love for us. That there is nothing we can do um, to lose your love. Your love is immovable for us in Christ. Because he's paid for all of our sin. And he's lived the life that we should have lived. And I pray that that gospel in this church it would... Uh, it would uh, come alive. It would bear fruit. It would bring uh, more people that you would use us for your kingdom. And that, like that mustard tree, it would grow even in Bellingham. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.